Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. The 1,500-mile-long Colorado River is a national gem. It flows through some of the most stunning landscapes of the American West, and more than 30 million people in the southwestern U.S. and another 2 million Mexican residents rely on the waterway and its tributaries for water and power. But the fate of the river is threatened by several conflicting interests. Today on this special one-hour program, producer Elaine Taylor explores the issues confronting the future of the Colorado with tonight's USU Science Unwrapped speaker, Jack Schmidt. I'm a professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences here at Utah State. Presently, I am on leave from the university, and I hold a position right now as chief of the Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center of the U.S. Geological Survey based in Flagstaff, Arizona. So could you tell me about when and how you started working in the Colorado River Basin? (laughs) I was a recreational river runner, and I did my first uh, river running in the early 1980s. I did a Grand Canyon River trip in 1981. Um, I found myself back in school working on a PhD dissertation. I was looking for dissertation topics and a friend of mine suggested that uh, I might work with the geological survey in Grand Canyon in some early uh, research that was going on there in the mid-1980s. I uh, was lucky enough to land that opportunity. So I did my first river research trip in Grand Canyon in 1984. I worked on my dissertation field work in 1984 and 1985, and I've uh, worked in Grand Canyon since. When I came to Utah State University, I began research on the Green River through Dinosaur National Monument in the early 1990s, and uh, been part of the river's been part of me ever since. Maybe you could refresh our memories on the history of the Colorado River. We could start that story um, either five uh, or six million years ago. Let me tell the history um, over the last century or so. The the Colorado River's watershed covers about 15% of the lower 48 states. The headwaters of the Colorado River are in the middle Rocky Mountains and southern Rocky Mountains in the state of Colorado and um, in the Wind River Range and Wyoming Range in the state of Wyoming. The longest uh, branch of the Colorado River system is the Green River system that comes out of Wyoming. Is in, The Green River is impounded at Flaming Gorge Dam and... Um, And the Colorado River's uh, main stem branch coming out of the state of Colorado, the Colorado and the Green join together in Canyonlands National Park here in Utah. The river was uh, first developed for utilitarian purposes at its very downstream end um, near the town of Yuma, Arizona, just north of the Mexican border. Uh, The river was diverted there 
into a, a uh, an area called the Salton Sink, an area below sea level uh, in the state of California that's now today called the Imperial Valley. And those diversions took place in the earliest of the 1900s. And so the river was developed at its downstream end. In the late 1800s, the river had been explored um, first by a geologist, John Wesley Powell. Um, the Colorado River was the least known of the major drainages of the lower 48th. And um, there is a history of adventurous exploration of the river uh, a history of admiring the river's magical scenic beauty. And at the same time, at the downstream end, the state, particularly the state of California, uh, increasingly was dependent on the irrigation, on the value of the water for irrigation. The river was developed to produce hydroelectricity, first in the 1930s at Hoover Dam and then elsewhere in the upper basin in the 1960s. Glen Canyon Dam was completed in 1963. So um, where we are today in that history is a river that has a rich history for the adventure of its exploration, a river that is one of the most magical and beautiful landscapes on earth a river on which approximately 40 million people depend for its water supplies, particularly in Southern California, Central Arizona, and in Mexico. A river that we're heavily dependent on for hydroelectricity. A river that has unique species that are endangered and live nowhere else on Earth. So the river really captures the full essence of the conflicts of resource development and exploration because you have the values of the river for the beauty of the national parks along the river and you have the values of the river for its utilitarian uses and therein captures the dilemmas of the modern age. How does the Glen Canyon Dam affect the river up and downstream? The headwaters are in uh, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, uh, Utah, uh, and then the river flows downstream through Arizona, along the border of Nevada, and along the border of California, and then into Mexico. The largest reservoir in the United States is Lake Mead, impounded by Hoover Dam. The second largest reservoir in the United States is Lake Powell, impounded by Glen Canyon Dam. Um, and the purposes of those reservoirs is basically to store water so that water supplies are available for downstream users, particularly during droughts. Electricity is produced there. Physically, what happens is that you store the water, and so the big flood that is distinctive of the Colorado River and that occurs upstream and through Canyonlands National Park, um, coming out of the Rocky Mountains, uh, that 
high water pulse in the spring is entirely stored in the reservoir and then the water released from the reservoir is released in a much more, let's say, average way. Um, so the natural peak flood of the river would occur in May and June. When water is released from Glen Canyon Dam, water is released to meet energy production needs. And so the two highest flow times of the year are in January and July and August, which are the heaviest demand months for electricity. So the timing of the floods have changed. The magnitude of the floods have changed in that uh, more equal amounts of water are released all year long rather than having a big difference between the magnitude of the flood and the low flow season. So a big change in the quantity and the pulse of the flow regime. The river, Colorado River is famous for its sediment supplies, for the amount of sediment transported by the river. Colorado, of course, means red in Spanish. And it was named because of that um, sediment uh, that, that the river carries. Well, all of the sediment transported by the river is deposited in Lake Powell. And any one of us who has traveled to Height Marina at the upstream end of Lake Powell, it's now largely an abandoned site because the river has large, it's brought in so much sediment that now the at low water, certainly uh, the boat ramps are um, uh, far away from the river. And so sediment fills the upstream ends of Lake Powell. The water released into Grand Canyon is crystal clear. So you're releasing water with mechanical energy. It's flowing water, but it has no sediment. And so downstream, the river tends to erode its uh, sandy deposits on the bed and on the banks of the river um, because it has that excess energy. So clear water. And then the, uh, the third big change is the temperature of the water. Before the dam, the river was very warm in summer and in many cases froze over in winter. Now the river water is released at nearly a constant of 46 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. So the river is not as cold as it once was in winter and it's not nearly as warm as it once was in summer. How how have these changes affected the wildlife or the plants or even tourism in the area? Right. Well, uh, let's see. A river ecosystem, uh, you, we can divide into two parts. The plant life on the banks of the river and the uh, fish and, and other invertebrates that live in the river. The elimination of floods has uh, eliminated a process that would scour away vegetation. And so we have much more riparian vegetation than we once had. And because now in the Western United States, we have the seed stock of many plants that are native to other continents, um, some of the species that proliferate in the absence of scouring floods are non-native plants. And familiar to many listeners is tamarisk and Russian olive. Tamarisk is abundant in the Colorado River in, 
in Grand Canyon. So we have more vegetation, but much of it is non-native. And then the dams themselves, Hoover Dam and Lake and, and Glen Canyon Dam, block the migration of some fish species that once roamed all over the um, watershed. The Colorado pike minnow was once roamed from Wyoming to Mexico. Um, the big high dams have blocked all that. And so we have some fish species that no longer exist in Grand Canyon at all simply because their migrations have been blocked. There is one fish species that is endangered but still exists in a healthy population in Grand Canyon called the humpback chub. It cannot spawn in the mainstem river because the river is too cold, but it does spawn in a tributary, the Little Colorado River. And um, uh, so we change the temperature and change the habitats for fish. We've lost some fish species. We've got a few endangered fish left. We've completely transformed the food base that the fish would eat, um, on which the fish would depend because different in insects live in the cold water timed by a different kind of flood regime. So that's the ecological um, impacts. You also mentioned recreation. Grand Canyon was a pretty dangerous and pretty exhilarating uh, river flow trip before the dam. Uh, Grand Canyon, uh, Colorado River and Grand Canyon is one of the most sought after and one of the most transformative and amazing river trips that one can make on this planet. And in some ways, Glen Canyon Dam operations have provided an assurance of flow that might even allow recreational boating to be uh, at least a um, more assured experience and certainly has guaranteed the use of much larger motorized rafts to go through than would be the case in the absence of the dam. The erosion of sand deposits has greatly reduced the available camping areas um, because most of the sandbars in which people would have camped are now gone. So those are the major effects. And is there a problem with pollution too? Not really. There are, on, on rare occasions, there are some sewage treatment ponds near Page, Arizona that have overflowed into the river that have caused some outbreaks of intestinal um, uh, problems for people. But um, all in all, that, that's really not an issue. The Colorado River system is really a system in which in its upstream end, very few people live. And there's very little industry. We do have, there are salinity issues, how salty the water is, but not really other kinds of industrial pollution. The largest city in the upper Colorado River Basin is Grand Junction, not a very big place. And so not a lot of opportunities for that, for, uh, for pollution. You are listening to an interview with USU scientist Jack Schmidt. Back in a moment after this station break.
Did you know that approximately 75% of students who receive mental health services get these services in school settings? School psychologists and school counselors are key mental health providers who help teachers and families maximize students' active engagement in learning and strengthen their personal, academic, and social development. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. On the next On Being, Congressman and civil rights legend John Lewis. When we were sitting in, it was love and action. When we went on the Freedom Run, it was love and action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love and action. We do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, that we love a country, and so we have to move our feet. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join me from APM. Sundays at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. Welcome back to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Joining us is Colorado River expert Jack Schmidt. Next, Elaine Taylor talks to Schmidt about his current research and his role in the water releases of the dam. Well, right now, I'm the boss of the, of the, of the center, and so I lead a staff of about 30 to 40 people. Our responsibility is that we are the primary agency that conducts the research in natural and, and to some extent, social science investigating the effects of the dams on the down on the dam on the downstream environment and um exploring ways to operate the dam in ways that would be uh, more beneficial to the downstream environment and so the uh, the staff that i have works on understanding sediment transport of the river understanding the physical changes in the habitat the sandbars where the sediment is stored, how sediment moves through, because all of that is ultimately tied to the availability of campsites and actually the stability of archaeological sites and other entities. Um, The research group that I lead uh, has a very strong focus on on aquatic sciences. About 45% of our budget is focused on fish science and aquatic ecosystem issues. There, the fundamental questions are issues related to the um, science of of understanding the native fish community and understanding how to keep that community viable and especially the endangered humpback chub. Immediately downstream of the dam, uh, rainbow trout constitute a sport fishery. And so there are issues related to how the dam releases are managed to benefit that. And ironically, rainbow trout eat humpback chub. And so another body of research concerns how those two species interact. Um, We have another program focused on riparian vegetation and understanding its changes. And then we have a program specific to understanding archaeological sites and anthropological issues in the canyon. Um, My particular work is in sediment transport and geomorphology. And so I 
still pursue some of that work in Grand Canyon, but at Utah State, um, over 20 years, I've worked on managing many of the big rivers of the western United States and jointly between Utah State and the Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center. We're also working on the issues related to managing the uh, rivers of the upper Green River system near Dinosaur, the Yampa River, managing the Rio Grande River in the, along the Texas-Mexico border in the Big Bend region. These are all big complex issues. How do we manage rivers for maximum environmental benefit on rivers that sustain enormous uses for society? Where does this research go? Are you making all the decisions about the river? or? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, a, a good question. Let's just stay focused on the Colorado River. All of the dams of the Colorado River system were constructed by the federal government. They were paid for by the taxpayer, by appropriations to Congress. In that sense, a taxpayer in Michigan paid as much to build Glen Canyon Dam as did a taxpayer in Utah. And all of those facilities are managed uh, by the Bureau of Reclamation, which is an agency of the federal government. So decisions about how to manage the Colorado River are ultimately decisions, I mean, in a sense, made by the President of the United States, truly made by the Secretary of the Interior, who serves in the President's cabinet. And uh, so the Colorado River system is truly a federal river. The dams are built by federal dollars. Most of the diversions were built and subsidized by federal dollars. The national parks are all federal national parks. The endangered species is regulated by the federal government. Um, the native tribes who have spiritual interest in Grand Canyon all have a relationship with the federal government. So there's lots of different entities. And so though people who have the vested interest in the Colorado River form a group, that group appointed by the government is called the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program. And uh, all of these stakeholders who have an interest in how the dam is managed, they meet on a regular basis to reach agreement on make recommendations to the Secretary of the Interior. My agency makes provides the science to inform that group. That group is composed of uh, representatives of the seven basin states. So essentially the governor of Utah appoints one person to represent the interests of the state of Utah in this group. Similarly, the governors of every other state appoints someone. So there's seven representatives of the states. There's a representative of each of the five tribes who have spiritual and cultural interest in Grand Canyon. There are two groups that represent consumers of the electricity produced by the dams. There are two groups that represent different recreational interests, and there are two environmental advocacy groups. And then each one of the agencies, federal agencies that are involved in management, Bureau of Reclamation, National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, they all have a representative. So um, 
What's done with this information is that I try to work with the group to synthesize and identify what are the key and most important big science questions that we have before us. And then we undertake that research, we report to the stakeholders, and then we continually revise and change the operations of the dam. The, this administration last year implemented some new policies whose intention is to explicitly benefit the environment of the Grand Canyon. And so uh, one of those new initiatives was an initiative to reintroduce pulsed floods back into Grand Canyon on a regular basis. And those pulsed floods are to occur whenever large amounts of sediment are brought into the river by the few tributaries that are left to come in, the most notable, the Perea River that has its headwaters in Bryce Canyon National Park. And so my agency collects all the science data to measure the sediment transport, to figure out what's come into the river, then we make recommendations on what that flood ought to look like to do the most benefit. And so last summer and fall, I was intimately involved with the staff in the efforts to systematically measure what was going on during the rainy season last summer and fall. And then the staff, we, we made recommendations on what that flood should look like and how, and then it, of course, took place a few days before Thanksgiving last last November. And so science that implements policy is the other piece. And the high flow, you know, controlled flood initiative that we now have underway is a, a big piece of what we're doing today. And what have you found and what do you hope these floods will accomplish? Um, a reasonable question and one that any taxpayer ought to ask. Um, one of the changes of the river has been the erosion of its sandbars and the erosion of many of its sandy deposits. And those deposits are valued by river runners and, and many others. And so if a river ha and, and most of the sediment formerly transported by the river is trapped in Lake Powell, and so it's 100 miles away, and it's there. So if one is going to try to rebuild sand deposits, one is trying to do that with this tiny amount of supply that is left, because most of it is upstream in the reservoir. So what we're trying to do is do the most good with this tiny little supply that's left. And so when this tiny little supply comes in, it goes kerplop on the bed of the river. It doesn't do any resources any good. Well, the basic business of these floods is that that amount of sediment accumulates over weeks to months, and then a flood pulse is released downstream through the river, stirs that sediment up off the bed of the river. Some of it is caught in the eddies in the, along the banks of the river, thereby rebuilding those deposits. And so the good of what's attempting to go on here is uh, to rebuild those deposits. And um, I've been involved in this since um, several of us proposed this idea. 
which was first implemented in 1996. And then after two subsequent experiments, um, the government decided to codify this in a formal agreement to to do these sort of actions. And now we've had one such action. The agreement stays in place for 10 years. And uh, we are monitoring whether we can sustain and rehabilitate the size of these bars. And it's really too early to tell because we've only had one flood. We know that it accomplished lots of good, but by the same token, those bars inevitably begin to erode as soon as the flood goes down. And so the real question is, does a cumulative effect of these events over time lead to a cumulative increase in sandbar area over a five to 10 year period? And that's what we're beginning to learn now. How often do you expect to do these floods? Um, nature is in control. And we could have a flood every fall. But to do that, we need a good monsoon season. We need a good rainy August and September in southern Utah. And as our friends in southern Utah know, some summers are rainy and others are not. So we don't know. Statistically, we might expect five out of ten years to have a flood. At the same time, there is always a potential of there being winter rains. It's not as common, but we could. If we had lots of winter rains bringing sediment in, then we could even have floods also in the spring as well as in the fall. But uh, if I knew what the weather would be like five years from now, I would change jobs. Have have there been unexpected or unplanned consequences from this flooding? There, there are scientific nuances, but in terms of the physical processes, basically what happened in November is just what we thought would happen. And so I would say no. I would say that the bigger issue that is in the realm of uncertainty are the consequences of these floods to the fish communities. So the bigger uncertainties in the future are actually biological, not physical. Um, when we have a flood in November, it causes a disturbance to the food base, to the critters, the bugs that live in the gravels on which the food, on which the fish feed. And so there, we adversely affect those critters in the short term, but then in the long term, typically those critters do better and the ones that we really care about do a lot better after floods. But when we have these floods in the fall, it's immediately followed by periods of cold and low daylight when biological populations cannot rejuvenate themselves. And so we wait and we see what the patterns are in the spring. Actually, it looks pretty darn good with the preliminary data that we have. And so um, there was some apprehension about what the biological effects of fall floods would be. Right now, we're not seeing them. So obviously, the Colorado is just one river. Um, so broadening our scope, are other rivers in the U.S. endangered like the Colorado is? 
um, I, I think I would answer that. I, I would temper your question, and I'm not gonna. I'm gonna steer away from what might be a loaded word, and that's endangered. And let me ask or answer a, a less value laden question, and then I'll then I'll come to your question. There is absolutely no question that human society is immensely dependent on dams and diversions. Uh, we bring significant amounts of water into the Wasatch Front from the Colorado River system through Strawberry Reservoir and through tunnels into the Provo River. Uh, we move water around in this country. We use electricity. We are very dependent on water and electricity from our river systems. And the construction of those dams and the operation of uh, the production of electricity has probably irreversibly changed our rivers. And so it is fair to say that many rivers in the United States are nothing like what they were when the pioneers or explorers first saw our landscapes. Now, some of us bemoan and are sad to not have experienced those rivers in their wild state. Others of us could care less and primarily are most interested that water comes out of the spigot and that there's electricity when we flip the switch. And all of us balance that differently. I think it is fair to say that the majority of rivers in the lower 48 are changed and the majority of them probably forever. That isn't to say that we don't have some glorious wild rivers, the Yampa River in northwestern Colorado, the Yellowstone River in Montana, the Salmon River in Idaho are all beautiful wild rivers. And the real question is, how many of these rivers that have really been changed could we potentially change back to make them more like the rivers of the old days than the rivers of today, let's say? Because at least in the national parks and in some other places, there's lots of citizens who value the rivers of the past. And I think the answer to that is... Um, that there are a lot of rivers that are fixable in that sense, and that we can probably have water supply. We can have assured water supply. We can have electricity, and we can have some very natural rivers of the past. But we can't fix every river. And so there are some rivers that probably we are not willing to pay that price as a society to fix with quote. I mean, if I use the word fix to, you know, with quotes around it, but essentially every river has been changed. Yes. What do you hope happens to the Colorado river in the future? Well, I have to confess that my life, my professional life has been spent trying to undertake the science to inform decisions that will lead us to have a healthier native ecosystem. At the same time, I know that society is immensely dependent on the Colorado River system. 
and that there would never be a political consensus in this country to return the entire river to the river of John Wesley Powell. I mean, that's just, there. there's 40 million people who need its water. Um, and so I have also really worked hard in my professional life to try to make the choices that we have to make as a society blatantly obvious to everyone in hopes that we don't try to fix everything, but we try to choose carefully the best battles to fight. And in the Colorado River system, we have some very exciting opportunities. The United States and Mexico signed a joint agreement just before Thanksgiving, just after the Grand Canyon flood of this year, to jointly attempt rehabilitation of the delta of the Colorado River in Mexico, where the river enters the Sea of Cortez. And we have a joint agreement in place, which will include reintroducing some floods through the delta in what was once one of the most biologically diverse places in North America. That's very exciting. It's a joint international effort. Um, and is truly exciting. I think that in Grand Canyon, the problems will always be extremely complex, politically charged, and maybe irresolvable. It's a huge supplier of water. It's a huge supplier of electricity, and it's one of America's greatest national parks. And so everybody's going to have a dog in that fight, People are going to always disagree, and we're probably always going to oscillate between some much lower standard of what's the best we can do but meet these water and electricity needs. In the upper basin, up where we are in Utah, upstream from Lake Powell, we probably can have some very wild rivers the Green River is an exceptional river through Dinosaur Monument, Desolation in Gray Canyons, Canyonlands National Park is an exceptional river. And we can probably have environmental protection, uh, enhancement of the native fishery, and achieve all that and meet society's demands because a large amount of that water is already dedicated to head downstream to supply water needs in Los Angeles and Arizona. So in the upstream part of the basin, we can probably have a wild river. And so my vision for the future is a river where we pick the right battles, that we work really, really hard to enhance those environments. And uh, we do what we can in Grand Canyon and... Uh, yeah, picking the right battles and winning those battles. That's my goal. Then I read a quote from you, and it says, a river that we experience today is fundamentally a pulse of water. Could you explain that to me? A, a river is many things to many people. For some people, a river is a spiritual entity. Um, I traveled to India years ago, and and for Hindus, the Ganga, the what we call the Ganges River, is literally a goddess. The rivers have um, spiritual or cultural force to lots of people, and and I will certainly say that some of my 
most glorious days alive have been uh, just on river trips with friends. At the same time, rivers are a glorious habitat in which a life proliferates, either within it or along its banks, and that's the riparian and aquatic ecosystem. At some other fundamental physical level, uh, it rains on the continents or it snows on the continents and the snows melt and we have floods. Those floods uh, move under the influence of gravity down their slopes. Um, They cut channels. Those channels become our streams and rivers. Um, those Those channels are maintained by the floods that pass through them, those pulses of water. Um, a geologist once described rivers in a very inglorious way as the gutters of the continents, carrying the excess water and the debris from the uh, continents to the sea. And it just so happens that although rivers are the gutters of the continents, they are a glorious environment in which life has proliferated and they bring lots of joy and wonder to lots of people who go to those rivers and fish those rivers. And uh, so it's all in the eye of the beholder. That's lovely. <laughs> what can people expect to hear at Science and Raft at Utah State? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> I am going to try to provide an overview. I'm going to Uh, start by providing an overview of the Colorado River and and uh, sort of how it functions both naturally and in this modern world. I think that oftentimes people don't understand the degree to which the river is plumbed and I think many people don't understand where their water comes from that comes out of their spigot each day or the fact that here at Utah State University some of these electrons that give us our lights right now are coming from Glen Canyon Dam. But from there on, I'll uh, talk about the choices before us, and I'll try to highlight to folks that in the end, we as citizens and the citizens in the audience get to make the choices on the future of the river, and that's what I'll focus on. Great. Thank you. Thanks. You can catch the USU Science Unwrapped Talk tonight at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center on the USU campus. Special thanks to Elaine Taylor for conducting this interview. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Next, Sarah Waller of KUOW in Seattle presents this feature story about a tree that orbited the moon. Three, two, one. On January 31, 1971, Apollo 14 roared into the clear blue sky. Its destination, the moon. Humans had only landed there twice before. Each of the three astronauts on board had a small nylon pouch containing personal items they wanted to take into space. Houston, everything looks good here on the ground. Edgar Mitchell took a patch from his college fraternity. Alan Shepard brought golf balls two of which he famously smacked off the lunar surface into space. But command module pilot Stuart Rusa brought tree seeds, about 500 of them. Because before Stuart was an astronaut, he was a smoke jumper with the U.S. Forest Service. He worked in the Pacific Northwest fighting forest fires. He loved the woods. 
So when the Forest Service approached NASA about taking tree seeds into space, Stewart stepped forward. He took them in his personal kit, and that meant carrying them a long, long way. I called NASA to find out just how far those seeds traveled. Dave Williams? That's Dr. David Williams. He's a space scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Center. He watched the launch of Apollo 14 mission as a kid. Well, the distance to the moon from the Earth is roughly about 240,000 miles, but you don't go straight there. You kind of follow this big circular trajectory. Once in the moon's orbit, the seed circled 34 times with Stuart in the command module, while the other two astronauts walked on the moon. Then they came back to Earth. The seeds had traveled about a million miles. NASA put them in a vacuum chamber as part of the decontamination process. That's where things almost went wrong. The pressure was too much for the canister, and it burst open. So all the seeds came, basically came flying out and were all instantly exposed to a vacuum. So the fear was that they killed the seeds. But just in case, NASA sent the seeds to the Forest Service to see if any had survived. They had. In fact, almost all of them sprouted. They were healthy and didn't seem any different from a group of control seeds that had stayed back on Earth. So the Forest Service started giving the moon trees away. One sapling was planted at the White House, another at Valley Forge, another one was given to the Emperor of Japan, and one ended up right here in Olympia at the main entrance to the Capitol campus. It's a Douglas fir. It's about 40 feet tall now. You can see the Capitol dome rising behind it. This Douglas fir tree grows too large to even be this close to a street. Something will need to change. Ray Gleason is an arborist. He was called in last summer when cracks started showing up in the sidewalk next to the moon tree. He did some excavation around the roots and found they were boxed in by a busy street on one side and a sidewalk on the other. And for a tree species that's the third tallest in the world, that's like trying to raise a whale in a fishbowl. Ray fears that within 50 years, the tree will die of root rot if something isn't done to give its roots more elbow room. We need to change the roads and the sidewalk here sooner or later. The layout of the sidewalk is part of a grand plan, and it's not something you just tinker with. That's Mary Grace Jennings. She's the cultural resource manager for the state. She says saving the moon tree is not as simple as moving concrete. The sidewalks surrounding the tree were designed by two famous landscape architects the Olmsted brothers, one of whom helped design Central Park. So moving this sidewalk would mean changing a key design element in the Olmsted's historic plan. And that was really something I was pretty reluctant about. I'd like the tree to last as long as it can, but it is planted in an urban setting. The state didn't change the Olmsted design. However, they did give the tree a little extra space by shifting the location of a wheelchair ramp. But new cracks are already starting to show. No one knows exactly how long the moon tree in Olympia can live in its current location. One proposal is to use seeds or grafts from the original tree to plant a second-generation moon tree in a better location. But David Williams at NASA says that every time a moon tree is lost, we're losing more than a tree. Well, it's like a living artifact. The astronauts and, and all the people who worked on Apollo back then, are, you know, they're, they're disappearing now. So it's very possible that the moon trees at some point, 20, 30 years from now, the moon trees will be the only living things that have ever been to the moon. 
The astronauts are now safely inside the command module. Tonight, they'll fire out of lunar orbit and head for splashdown in the Pacific Tuesday afternoon.